Thank you for that introduction. Every time somebody reads my titles, I'm a little bit embarrassed. But, um, you know, we, we run a cell and gene therapy center at Stanford, but I think we, we named it the Center for Definitive and Curative Medicine because the goal is not to do cell and gene therapy. The goal is to give one-shot therapies that cure patients uh, for their lives. And, it, and, and the name really reflects the patient goal rather than the modality of getting there. Um, and my title of my talk today is Good Enough is Not Good Enough um, because I don't think actually this is an audience that needs convincing of that. But I can tell you that there are uh, stakeholders in the field of cell and gene therapy and curative medicines that will come back and say, well, isn't something good enough? Um, and so trying to um, get rid of that thought process. I have been involved in uh, several biotech companies, one of which will become uh, relevant. Um, this is the Stanford Nationwide Children's Hospital Cystic Fibrosis Genome Editing Team that I work with. Uh, you heard several of these uh, uh, people speak uh, yesterday, including uh, Dr. Suram Bajinathan, who's uh, here smiling by his new uh, office door at Nationwide Children's. It's super exciting uh, and proud picture for me. Um, but again, uh, many of these people are well known to you, including uh, Dr. Jeff Wine. Um, so why is good enough uh, is never good enough? This is, a, I'm gonna show uh, the, the lifespan increases in cystic fibrosis in the next slide, but I thought I'd show a different slide. Um, and this is the cure rate of pediatric patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, cancer. Um, and you can see in 1960 to 1970, the cure rate was 5% uh, or below, 10% or below. That line is a, a little blurred out. Um, and then there was a slow improvement to 30%, and then a, a pretty good jump from in the next uh, line in the 1972 to 1975 cohort, um, and that jumped to about a 60% cure rate. And one could imagine people at the time saying, well, we've taken a universally lethal disease, and now we have a 60% cure rate. Isn't that good enough? And luckily, investigators said, no, that's not good enough. And you can see that there's iterative improvements by about every three years or so, three to five years, you get an iterative improvement. And so now the uh, long-term cure rate for a pediatric patient diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia is around 95%, okay? Now there's still 5% to go and investigators are looking to uh, uh, improve that last 5%. But they're also looking to minimize the long-term toxicities for the other 95%. Can we make this um, uh, safer and more effective by substituting chemotherapy for things like antibodies and things like CAR T cells? Again, good enough is never good enough. And fortunately, uh, we're around people who believe in that. And of course, this is the curve um, for cystic fibrosis and lifespan where one can see that a universally uh, fatal disease in childhood is now a disease in which people can live into adulthood. And one could say, isn't living to your 40s good enough? Well, I'm over 40, so thankfully, I will say that is not good enough. I think all of us in this room know that the goal is to give patients with cystic fibrosis the expectation that they can live a long, high quality of life um, and, and normal life as possible. And I believe that despite the successes of modulator therapy, a real um, uh, uh, gold star in, I think, uh, biomedical research, 
one day it's going to be a uh, definitive cell and gene therapy that's going to allow patients to get um, to this long and healthy and normal life. And that's really saying, what that's saying is, is that when we develop new classes of medicines, um, we are able to either improve on the older classes of medicines or address patients who the older classes of medicines don't address. And uh, by the way, this is not to minimize the importance of vaccines. We would not be here today uh, without uh, the rapid the discovery and implementation of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Is not to minimize the importance of small molecule therapies, obviously an audience uh, that needs no convincing of that or biologics, uh, enzyme and antibody therapies, or even nucleic acid therapies. But what we're talking about is cell medicines in which a cell is given um, to a patient a as a cure or as a potential therapy, or gene medicines in which a gene is given to uh, um, uh, patients. And when I say all hands on deck, what I'm not trying to say is, is one needs to choose between developing cell-based medicines or gene-based medicines, that we should be developing all of these uh, in parallel. Now, I'm going to focus on developing a cell-based medicine uh, for cystic fibrosis and other diseases. And the reason I'm excited about, and many of us are excited about cell-based medicines, is they have different pharmacokinetics and hopefully different pharmacodynamics. That is, how they behave in the body, uh, how long they last in the body, and where they go in the body is different, and how they interact with the body, the PD, is also different. So this is a, an experiment, and you'll see a similar experiment uh, related to cystic fibrosis, in which we labeled um, stem cells for the blood, hematopoietic stem cells, with a luciferase gene, a gene that uh, emits light when you give it its substrate. And then you can image the mice who receive these genetically engineered hematopoietic stem cells. And the stem cells were injected at time zero, uh, shown in the top left corner. Um, and then in the next uh, image shown at time three days, you can see the cells are localized to the left uh, femur where the cells were injected. Now, instead of a small molecule drug or a biologic drug, De immediately degrading over some uh, period of time. This is a cellular drug that expands over time. And it first expands at the site of the injection and then it migrates to the other femur. And eventually it migrates to all of the natural places hematopoietic stem cells live, uh, which is the marrow of the bones. What this imaging does not show is, is that the progeny of these stem cells have migrated um, into other tissues of the body. Um, and so this is why uh, so many of us are exciting about, excited about cell-based therapies. Now, the question then is how to engineer these cells so that they have the properties you want um, in terms of correcting underlying genetic diseases. And homologous recombination is a process that allows us to make a, a, world, a world, a variety of different changes to the genome. It allows us to make changes of single letters in the genome, it allows us to insert genes in a variety of different ways. And it's actually the first two uh, sort of schematics that I'll describe, um, changing an A to a T, which I'll describe our progress for sickle cell disease, and inserting a wild type copy of the gene back into itself. And Shuram yesterday described how we've developed this as a uh, pan mutation or a universal strategy for diseases in which patients have mutations scattered throughout the genome, such as in cystic fibrosis. 
And the specific way this works is we develop a CRISPR-Cas9 uh, system, uh, the CRISPR system having been awarded for uh, a Nobel Prize just a couple of years ago, in which we take the purified molecular scissors, the Cas9 protein, complex it to a synthetic guide molecule, which uh, complexes the Cas9 protein and through Watson-Crick-based pairing brings the molecular scissors to the target site we want, at which point it cuts a, uh, um, uh, makes a cut in the genomic DNA where we want in the target site of interest. By the way, the CRISPR-Cas9 system was, was dis discovered um, in, uh, as a way that bacteria create resistance to phages. And so one of the questions I'll talk to uh, our previous speaker about is whether sometimes the resistance uh, to phages is actually coming from a CRISPR system within the bacteria, uh, making them resistant to phages. But nonetheless, this uh, bacterial uh, immune system has been repurposed as a genome editing system for my purposes. Um, and so we make a double-stranded break, and then that break can re be repaired in a number of different ways. It can be repaired in a mutagenic fashion in which we either create small mutations at the site of the break or larger mutations at the site of the break. But this really uh, can be, this can be applied as a workaround for a number of diseases. But if you really think about genetic diseases, we want to fix the mutation by putting in the exact letters that we want. And to harness that pathway, we use a cellular uh, repair machinery called homologous recombination or homology-directed repair. And to activate this pathway, not only do we have to make the break where we want, is we have to give the cell a piece of DNA that is undamaged um, that the recombination machinery will use via copy and paste mechanism to fix the break. And by designing that uh, template in the right way, we can take uh, a target site of interest and convert it to a target site of great interest. And um, without spending a lot of time uh, getting to the system that we've developed, this is the system that we use. And, and, and again, Shuram described yesterday. It's an ex vivo system. That is, we're going to modify cells outside the body. And we're going to do that by purifying our, stem, our cells of interest. And this could be hematopoietic stem cells. This could be the stem cells of the respiratory epithelium, the basal cells. We put them, these cells, in culture, and we put them into uh, uh, we, we want to develop culture conditions in which they divide because the recombination process is active in dividing cells, not in non-dividing cells. We then take our purified CRISPR-Cas9 um, and deliver it uh, as a complex. Um, and then we deliver that donor template on a non-integrating virus. Uh, essentially, AAV is like a phage to mammalian cells, like phage are to bacterial cells. Um, but this virus, instead of being engineered to replicate, is engineered not to replicate and simply deliver its DNA cargo to the nucleus. And the reason we choose AAV is, is that mammalian cells have redundant sensors in the cytoplasm that, that are designed to detect whether they're being infected. And if you just put naked DNA into the cell types we're interested in, um, you trigger alarm bells uh, and you trigger a, uh, a panic response in these cells, um, most notably uh, the interferon response, which makes the cells sick. And if it occurs in us, of course, makes us feel like we have the flu or worse. And using this system, we're able to, uh, engineer, we're able to generate uh, integration frequencies of 50, um, 30 to 50 to even 80%. So the first example I want to give is um, 
oh good, I have a calendar, up, um, is to, for sickle cell disease. Um, and this is a disease in which every patient has the same uh, genetic variant, a uh, conversion of an A to a T on codon six. So in many ways, this is not only a, a, a perfect disease because every patient has the same mutation, it is also a, a common disease. And I, I hate to disappoint you all, but sickle cell disease is more common than cystic fibrosis. Uh, you, I hear people say that cystic fibrosis is the most common genetic disease. That's not true. Sickle cell disease is more common. We don't need, but again, all hands on deck, you know, we're not fighting with each other. Uh, it's a disease in which a single protein is expressed in a single cell, which actually makes it a, a much simpler disease genetically and from a cell biology standpoint than cystic fibrosis. So a large team of people and these efforts, um, both in the lab and then taking them from the lab uh, to the clinic require enormous teams of people, some of whom uh, the key leaders are shown here. Um, we developed a system in which we made a break near the mutation that causes uh, uh, sickle cell disease, and then de designed a donor template that would allow us to repair the mutation that causes the disease. And shown in green is using the stem cells from sickle cell disease patients, the hematopoietic stem cells from sickle cell disease patients, we get about 60 to 80% correction. It's predicted, it was predicted before clinical trials that you might need 20% correction. So um, excited about that, and I, I'm not going into all the efficacy data, but we also then, before we could start a trial in patients, we had to present a suite of assays, a, 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 um, not just one piece of data, but a variety of pieces of data to the FDA to assess the toxicity of the cell products. And um, the studies we did are consistent with uh, what the FDA has now published as draft guidance for what a genome-edited cell therapy or a genome-edited therapy needs to do. And they fall into three buckets. The three buckets are tell us where your CRISPR might be cutting that you don't want it to cut and whether that's causing any problems. Does your process generate not just off-target uh, mutations, but does it uh, generate um, structural variations or chromosomal rearrangements in the, in the genome? And then how do your cells behave? Um, do they develop properties that um, might make them unsafe, whether that's in vitro or in vivo? And using uh, these uh, three assays, we found that um, our sickle cell uh, guide RNA um, in the top right corner um, did make a break uh, at an off-target site, what we call OT1, and there were small, uh, low-frequency mutations at that break. The reason I bring this up is, is that it didn't preclude this therapy from getting into patients. We annotated where this off-target site was, and it was someplace that had no, uh, bio, no known relevance. We then worked to uh, establish whether, what, whether there were chromosomal translocations occurring. And using a sensitive assay, we found that about one in 30,000 cells would have a translocation between our on-target site and our off-target site. And again, the FDA didn't say, oh, that's too high. They just said, we want to know that. And then finally, the lower uh, two uh, right-hand figures show in green how well the cells behaved compared to unmanipulated cells shown in blue. 
And generally in two different assays, what we found is, is that the manipulated cells in green had about 50% of the activity of the unmanipulated cells shown in blue. However, the green cells overlapped in their activity with blue cells, that is the biologic variation uh, overlapped. And so with this uh, in hand, I'm gonna skip through this slide. Um, and then uh, finally, we've done additional uh, post IND submission work with Kyle Cromer um, showing that the process didn't generate any mutations in cancer-associated genes in hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, and that's actually been true in, in basal cells as well. So the program was licensed to a company called Graphite Bio, um, and Graphite uh, treated the first uh, patient in August of last year, so approximately one year ago. This is the first patient to ever receive a product in which the disease-causing mutation was directly uh, corrected. Um, in January of this year, the uh, patient um, uh, was five months out, and it is normal following a bone marrow transplantation uh, for patients to need transfusions. That's the expected course. However, she was needing transfusions uh, for a period longer than expected. And so uh, the, the company put the trial on a voluntary pause. Now, what we've learned since January is that her bone marrow has recovered. Um, she's now transfusion independent. She has no signs of any adverse event in her hematopoietic system. And she has hematologic parameters and clinical parameters that show she's cured of her disease. We've also learned that as low as 5% correction uh, in the bone marrow may be sufficient to cure somebody of sickle cell disease. So it's an interesting uh, process. So we have learned an enormous amount from this first patient. And I'm proud that we said, well, instead of treating patients two and three, while we've learned a lot and, and the success a year later looks good, we also know that if we're gonna apply this to hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of patients, uh, we need to improve the process. And so we've gone back um, into our process development uh, uh, and developed an improved manufacturing process and hope to uh, reinitiate this clinical trial in the new, near future with an improved manufacturing process, having learned what happened in patient one. So um, I'll now just switch to cystic fibrosis in the last few minutes. Um, this is a gene, uh, as you all know, that has mutations throughout the CFTR gene. It is also, uh, these mutations fall into different classes uh, in terms of what it does to the protein, including um, uh, mutations that uh, decrease function, decrease trafficking, but also mutations that cause the simple lack of the protein on the cell surface. Um, and so um, I believe, I mean, Dr. Vajunathan yesterday, Sherem yesterday described um, that the spectrum of mutations that might be uh, responsive to module or the number percent of patients that are modulator responsive, um, it might be lower than uh, had been previously pr predicted. And I hope Dr. McCory later on today will um, expound upon that data. So we um, have developed, and again, Sherem described this yesterday, the idea that we would take um, some, uh, basal cells from the sinus, um, uh, which are the stem cells for the respiratory epithelium, uh, correct them, and then embed them in a matrix and give them back. So why did we pick the sinus? Um, we felt like it was an organ uh, that was accessible. It was an organ that if you 
were unsuccessful in getting engraftment, it was safe because sinus, um, sinus cells will, uh, if you debride the sinus epithelium, it will come back naturally on its own. So there's not any, uh, there shouldn't be any uh, putting patients at risk of, uh, of losing their life, like you might if you did this in the lower airways. And finally, it's still a important cause of morbidity and perhaps a, a contributing cause to mortality in patients with um, cystic fibrosis. And yesterday during Shiram's talk, uh, two patients commented about how uh, chronic sinusitis is still an important problem uh, for them in their lives. Um, so with that in mind, we are using the second strategy, which again, Shiram described uh, to some extent yesterday, which is um, to correct all the mutations in the gene. We didn't want to try to correct them one by one, because right now in 2023, a one-by-one -one correction strategy, um, well, let me just put, rephrase it this way. Every mutation correction strategy costs tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're just not in a position to do a one-by-one -one correction with any genome editing platform now. So we wanted to develop a platform that would be uh, mutation agnostic or, or quote universal. And to do that, we um, uh, built on prior work in my lab that did show that if you insert a wild type copy of the cDNA back into itself, you can rescue downstream mutations. We did this for a gene uh, related to bubble boy disease, but this has been applied now to a number of other uh, genetic immune deficiencies. Um, as Shuram described yesterday, the CF uh, cDNA, even a truncated CF cDNA, um, doesn't easily fit in our AAV vector. So we had to use a double AAV approach that was first described by Erasmus back in this paper. Um, but using this, and so the approach then was to put one half of the correct cDNA at the start site with one AAV and then use the second AAV to put in the second half and as well as to put a cell surface selectable marker. The cell surface selectable marker is engineered to not have an intracellular signaling domain. And so it's simply a flag on the surface that says this cell has the correction and allows us then to purify those cells um, from two to 5% up to over 60%. So we have a now a purified population of cells. And again, um, these cells, uh, when differentiated in an air-liquid interface and measure their electrophysiology, begin uh, now match uh, let me put it this way, populations of cells that have gone through this process derived from patients with cystic fibrosis now have the electrophysiologic properties of us, uh, air-liquid interface um, uh, uh, cultures uh, from non-CF patients. So we, we've reached that, which is all well and good. And I, I, I talk a lot to uh, uh, diseases and say, we can really correct mutations in cells now pretty easily, but how do we give those cells back? So the first uh, step is to identify a scaffold to put them back in. We originally were thinking about a, a porcine uh, uh, scaffold, but um, again, as Jerome described yesterday, he screened a number of different gels to embed these cells into. Um, and we identified both fibrinogen and biosilk as uh, uh, gels that these cells would proliferate in and maintain the basal uh, properties. They didn't induce differentiation of the stem cells. Great, but how do we put them back? Well, this is again, work uh, done with um, 
uh, Shuram and Don Bravo and Jaya Karnayak and our entire Stanford team. And what uh, Don first did is just take green cells from one mouse and see if she could uh, squirt or green luciferase cells from one mouse and put them into another mouse. And amazingly, we could see that these basal cells could engraft into the sinus epithelium of a mouse. So now we're doing a cellular transplantation for an organ that is typically not thought to be amenable to a cell transplantation. That was mouse into mouse. So then the question is, is can we take human cells and engraft them into a mouse? There are a hundred reasons why this experiment wouldn't have worked, uh, including the fact like, is the mouse epithelium even supportive of human cells? But really encouragingly and surprisingly, when we take human cells, um, label them with luciferase, like I described for hematopoietic stem cells, embed them into the fibrinogen matrix, and squirt them into the sinus of an immunodeficient mouse. Then the mouse has to be immunodeficient because it will reject the human cells otherwise. And then look over time and see, do those cells persist? And we see um, that those cells uh, persist over time for, uh, in this experiment, for a month and a half, but it's gone on for three and a half to four months now. And um, as Sharam showed yesterday, this happens uh, with across different donors. When you take these um, uh, now do the same experiment with basal cells from cystic fibrosis patients that have been engineered with that CD19 surface. So now they're not labeled with luciferase, but instead they're labeled by CD19 on their surface. And we look at how the cells have integrated into the mouse epithelium. What you can see in the top panel is the mouse cells are labeled in white um, and the, all the cells are labeled in blue. In the next panel, you can see the human cells are labeled in green and the, mouse, and the mouse cells are labeled in white. And you can see patches of green human cells intermingled among the mouse uh, white cells. And if you go down and look at different sections, not only can you see the human cells intermingled with the mouse cells, you can see in white in this uh, uh, micrograph, uh, okay, uh, maybe I have a pointer. I do have a pointer. Um, right here, these white cells are human and they're lying exactly where the basal cells need to lie at the basement of the epithelium. And so we have seen, now we sh this shows that we can get engraftment that is stable out to two and a half months post-transplant of the basal cells that presumably can give rise to the respiratory epithelium for um, the duration of, of the patient's life. And again, more pictures uh, from Don uh, about showing that this can be done with cells derived from CF patients and non-CF patients. And we get this Apache um, uh, integration of human cells into the mouse uh, epithelium of the sinus. So with this data in hand, we had a meeting with the FDA, a pre-IND meeting, where we asked them a series of questions about what would we, we would, I've learned over the years, you don't ask the FDA what you should do, is you propose to the FDA what you want to do, and then they either tell you that they agree or they don't. Um, so we proposed a number of studies about what we think we would need to do um, to uh, have a successful IND and thereby open a clinical trial. And so that meeting as, uh, was held last December. Um, 
and we proposed a process of process development that they didn't have any concerns uh, with. Um, we are considering whether we'll incorporate the small molecule that Sharon described yesterday to enhance the gene correction process. There's pros and cons to doing that. We proposed a series of safety and toxicology studies, and we proposed a clinical trial design. Um, the clinical trial design uh, we're proposing is that the first patients treated would have to have chronic sinusitis um, and either be post-lung uh, transplantation, so not eligible, eligible for modulator therapy, or patients who have uh, mutations that are not responsive to modulator therapy, and the third class of patients are patients who, for whatever reason, are non-responsive or intolerant of modulator therapy. And to build out on the safety and toxicology studies, the FDA gave us more granular feedback and said, in addition to assessing genotoxicity, um, the variety of on-target changes, off-target indels, and genome stability, they wanted us to do a, a more formal biodistribution study. Where do these cells go? I showed you in our images, they seem to be stuck right where we put them in the sinus, but they want us to do this more formally and find out, are they happy to migrate to other tissues or other parts of the respiratory epithelium? I'll point out, if they happen to migrate to other parts of the respiratory epithelium, that would be a win. Uh, we would, boy, that would be fantastic. We're not expecting that. We're expecting that there's going to have to be more work to figure out how to get sinus basal cells down to the lower respiratory epithelium. But if it happens to occur, we'll take it. They want us to do um, a, a tumor genicity study and look at whether the tumors, uh, uh, the cells develop tumors after transplantation. Again, we have no evidence of that, um, but again, we have to do this in a formal study. And then the, the, the thing we hadn't proposed, and again, in, in addition to the biodistribution study, is they asked us to demonstrate that we can actually uh, do this surgically as we propose. Um, and they said, we want to see evidence that you can do this in an animal model with a sinus of a similar size uh, to a human sinus. And so uh, Dr. Nyack uh, and colleagues have identified the rabbit as the, uh, the right model. And so we will um, show that we can do the entire process. Now, they're not asking us to do uh, rabbit editing, and they're not asking us in this study to do um, to show that the human cells will last a long time in the rabbit, but they're just showing, can you physically do what you're saying? Harness, harvest the cells, edit the cells, then debride the sinus, transplant the cells in the matrix. Like, can you actually do things? And I think it makes a lot of sense. So in summary, the cool thing about genome editing is especially when you're engineering cells outside the body is you can do amazing things, things that you could only draw on the chalkboard even just a few years ago. Improvements are going to continue um, and good enough is not good enough. And we're always looking for ways of uh, improving the frequency. Showing you data that we can insert a full cystic fibrosis cDNA at the endogenous start codon and rescue uh, the physiologic properties. And again, Ashram yesterday showed that that insertion uh, seems to not perturb the genomic architecture uh, of the locus uh, as well, which is very uh, encouraging. We can engraft these cells uh, into the upper airway of the sinuses and get integration in the sinus epithelium, um, something very exciting to us. And I think really raises the possibility that cell-based therapies could be used for more what we call solid organs, although the respiratory epithelium is sort of a 
sheet organ, but I think it, it raises the possibility not to preclude like we need to do in vivo gene therapy and 4D is here and you know we're excited about their results. It's not an either or here. It's let's push each other to do better and better. So now we need to execute on the IND enabling experiments and then hopefully move uh, to a phase one, two trial in adults with serious sinus disease. And in the future, we need to figure out how to get to the lower airway. And one way of getting to the lower airway is to somehow induce migration uh, from the sinus into the lower airways. And there's some uh, ideas out there. But what we've proposed to the CFRI is a new project uh, that's being supported by a Nash Fellowship to Dr. Amaya in my lab, a postdoctoral fellow, which we call ex vivo whole organ gene correction. I'm not going to show you a lot of uh, data on this. Uh, it's a crazy idea. I get it, but <laughs> that's okay. And the idea is instead of taking cells and engineering them and transplanting cells, it's let's take a lobe of the lung and engineer the lung outside the body, genetically engineer the cells of the lung outside the body, and then transplant that lobe back. Um, luckily, surgeons are really, well, we'll use a, we'll use a, I won't use it as a pejorative, they're cowboys. Uh, they'll do a lot of crazy stuff. And we like to do crazy stuff too. What this is enabled by is the development of these domes where you are these extra uh, um, uh, extracorporeal vascular EVLPs where you can hook the lung up to a ventilator and a, a pump and keep them alive for at least 24 hours. You can keep the liver alive for a week. Um, we have identified uh, AV capsids uh, that transduce uh, the base uh, the lung we're confirming whether they're the basal cells in slices. We've learned that the same reagents that work in cells uh, don't necessarily work in slices because the extracellular matrix and the cell composition is different. And we can't electroporate, we can't put electricity across the entire lung. So we need to develop a non-electroporation delivery method. And for that, we're gonna use lipid nanoparticles or we propose to use lipid nanoparticles um, that will deliver the CRISPR-Cas9 as an mRNA and guide RNA. Um, and that will, uh, and we've identified an LMP that delivers mRNA to lung cells. And again, we're confirming uh, whether the LMP is actually delivering to the basal cells. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, we're gonna move from you know, thick lung slices. And if we find get it that all working, then of course we're gonna have to do it in the real, the real lungs themselves. Um, so thank you for inviting me to present to, on this education day. I'm super excited to work with all of uh, my collaborators in my lab, um, uh, in, my, in my division of stem cell transplantation at Stanford. Uh, oh, CFRI needs to be in bold in like 20 point font, I switched my slide, but thank you to the CFRI for their continued uh, support of my lab in this program. Uh, it's great to be able to engage with a, a local organization. Um, this is a picture of uh, people in the lab, um, some of which were taken last summer. Um, I'm running out of time, so I won't run a quiz about why there's a penguin shown, uh, but the answer is, is that I have people from my lab um, from six of the seven continents of the world. Um, and so when the lab heard that, they got me a penguin to represent the seventh continent, Antarctica. 
I now say I have a standing invitation to the small number of people who were born in Antarctica. You have a place in my lab uh, at, any, uh, at any point. Um, and finally, I'll just conclude with a quote from the current president of El Nylum, who talks about the drug development is not for the faint of heart, but he also um, talks about, nor is it a pursuit for the impatient soul, uh, soul. And he talks about how this company, which uh, pioneered the use of siRNAs to knock down genes, had many, many chances in which they could have ended their story, but they've uh, been on a 20-year journey to unlock the potential, which is great. On the other hand, we have patients today that need better therapies. And so I think we need to find that right balance. And I don't think it's ever defined what that right balance is between the urgency and patience we need to develop better therapies for patients, but having the patience to understand of the feasibility and the iteration that these therapies take. So thank you for your attention and hopefully we have time for a couple of questions.